We're live. We are on air. Kellen, we're back. We made it, dude. We made it through another week. Woo! What's going on, everybody? Hey, hey, everybody. We are back once again. Raymond. And I'm Cal. Here with the Beginner Photography Podcast. And today, I think that we got a pretty exciting episode. It's all about lenses, right? It is. All of them. Long ones, short ones, big ones, heavy ones, expensive ones, cheap ones. Hey, everybody. Raymond here from the future, where guess what? We have much better audio quality. Uh, I just wanted to chime in here and let you know that this episode was recorded back in 2015. So um, listening back to this episode, there are a few things that, um, you know, over the years, we've gotten emails from listeners about saying that, you know, one of these, this episode right here was one of the most helpful to them. However, they still had a few questions about the things that we talked about. So I'm going to be chiming in every once in a while to share uh, some updated information and expand a little bit on things that uh, maybe I didn't go very in-depth upon in the actual episode itself. So with that, let's go ahead and get on into this episode all about lenses. Every single one we could think of. And this is a question that I hear a lot from you know, a lot of uh, new photographers, which is why lenses are so expensive. So we're definitely going to get into that. But first, Callum, how was your week, man? It was good. Super busy. Um, I heard that you got a new toy. I got a new toy. I picked up uh, a D750. Uh, 750. It was time, <laughs> you know, um, with the Black Friday sales going on. I couldn't resist it and you know i needed to upgrade so it was time um and then spent the weekend kind of not doing anything photography related i was just visiting a childhood best friend who's about to have a kid so we, Ooh. Got, up, we got up there just before he could uh before it's you know she arrived onto the world and he never sleeps again so <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious i remember those days they uh they go by quicker than expected, but that's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. So you've been uh, playing around with it a little bit, though? Yeah, I had a chance to go out the other night um, and do a little bit of a portrait session kind of at sunset with uh, friends, um, and I'm hoping to use it on a couple engagement shoots coming up. Uh, so you'll have to wait to see those. How was your weekend? My, weekend? my weekend was pretty awesome, actually. Uh, it was Thanksgiving here in the States on Thursday, so uh, Thursday, actually, uh, I didn't really do anything. It was on Friday that my in-laws decided to have their whole family get together. So we did that. I brought my camera along, and uh, I was just having such a good time that I, I, I didn't even think about photos, and I ended up not taking any, actually, surprisingly. But my camera stayed in my pocket the whole time, and sometimes I think it's important to, uh, you know, know – when it's time to be in the moment and when it's time to take some photos. So absolutely. It was very good. Taking downtime, I think is important. It also recharges you a lot. Um, Same with us. When we did American Thanksgiving up here in Canada, because my fiance is American and you know, I could have brought my camera over and I kind of just said, no, I'm just going to relax. I'm sure my fiance is, you know, had enough of me shooting pictures of her this week. So um, yeah, for sure. And now that it's, uh, you know, I'm done with weddings for the year. Are you done with weddings for the year? Uh, yeah, yeah, I am. That's awesome. I bet now you're starting to feel kind of like, not resentment, but, um, you know, there's some reservations about picking up your camera, right? With, uh, with all the work that you've been doing throughout the summer and the spring and, you know, even into the fall with weddings. 
Absolutely. Yeah, a little bit of decompression time is really good. Um, and it also gives me a chance to kind of look back at my own work and kind of see what I like and what I want to get better at and, you know, lets me plan for next year. But with the new D750 in my hands now, I'm kind of, you know, you can just hear, you can hear my dog there. She's shaking uh, <laughs> her hair and shedding everywhere. But, yeah, I've been itching to kind of shoot this week a bit more than I think the last two weeks. Um, so it's been interesting. It's been cool. I like it. It is cool. I bet that's got to be a weird feeling. Like, you know what? I'm ready to take a break from the photos for a little bit after having such a long wedding season, but I just got a brand new camera and I just want to shoot everything now. So it's kind of conflicting, right? <laughs> it is definitely conflicting. Um, but we are busy in other parts of the you know spectrum of our lives. So here we are. Here we are. And, you know, that kind of uh, reminds me that uh, – I'm sorry. Mm. With um, – like we just talked about having – reservations, I guess, as far as picking up your camera and, and uh, putting it in front of people's faces. It kind of feels like the camera becomes somewhat of a, a ball and chain after the whole wedding season. But I want to talk about how, you know, one thing that I learned this week was the importance of doing something that you actually love. So obviously, we love photography. We are photographers. We do this full time. But sometimes the business kind of takes over and, um, you know, just kind of plays in the back of your head all the time. And it's just like this low hum. And you forget why you fell in love with photography in the first place. But I just had some engagement photos with a couple who, they're very low key. They said that they really don't like, you know, much PDA or, or um, public displays of affection. And they just wanted to go out and grab a beer, you know, for their engagement photos. And I'm all about that. I thought that that was awesome. It gave me another reason to show off, um, or I guess, um, yeah, show off the awesome qualities of my Fuji cameras and how much smaller they were. Because obviously, if we were to go to a brewery and I were to bring, you know, my Mark III and a, uh, you know, and a big lens, everybody is going to be looking. Um, it's going to feel uncomfortable for everybody else. But when I just brought my little Fuji, you know, X X100T. I don't have it on me, but it's about this size. It's much smaller. You know, you just look through it and then boom, you just take a photo or two and then you're done, right? There wasn't any of this, hey, look at each other and kiss and, you know, do something with your hair, flip it off to the side. It was just, it felt like some people hanging out. It felt like, you know, we were just grabbing a beer and I just so happened to take a few photos of them and it really recharged me and my love for photography and my passion rather and it was just fun, you know what I mean? And it really made me think like, oh, God, I cannot wait for next year's wedding season to start so that I can start taking photos again. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure that you can relate for sure. Yeah, earlier. So I got this D750 last week. But, you know, um, Monday I kind of just – I was itching to get out and actually shoot with some intent and try out some different things. And, um, you know, instead of just taking pictures of the couch in my apartment, um, just reached, I just threw it out on Facebook. just like, I just, you know – one of my friends who wants to go on a little bit of a walk adventure through this like forest area. Um, and uh, one of my friends, Jordan got back to me and just said, you know, yeah, I'd love to go for a walk. And then it kind of turned into this like very impromptu, no real specific direction, you know, portrait session where I just got to kind of have fun and not really worry about anything other than what I really loved about photography. And that was capturing kind of little hints of moments in daily life. Um, 
and you know very organic um and at the end of it i came back really recharged it was like you know i didn't get paid for this um i just got to go out and explore a forest near my house and it was like one of the best feelings ever um so i'm totally on the same page with you that's so awesome and it's cool that it kind of happened at the same time that we can both totally relate to each other because you know some people I don't know. I guess they might not feel the same way or, uh, you know, it really is a business for them. And the camera's just a tool that they use to make more money. But uh, I love that we have a passion for this. And, and hopefully our listeners do too, because that's exactly who, you know, we want to talk to, who we want to listen to our podcast. People who love photography, who want to learn as much as they can about it. And uh, whether they want to start a business later on down the road or not, kind of really doesn't matter at this point um in their in their learning adventure totally yeah it's uh even myself like you know we're gonna see actually we got we're gonna show off some images today when we talk about uh uh compression and, and lens choices and all that stuff and i've got some for my travels backpacking europe um of, you know really bad photos i think you know for what i demand on myself but you know, Raymond thinks they're great photos, so we're gonna we're gonna show them off to the world. Yeah, I already saw them. I think they're cool. And I even go back then and see those, even knowing know I what I can do now. But back then, I can go, oh, I can see why I did this and why I was so excited about this photo at the time, and you know why I loved photography back then. And and seeing that, I think love and and dedication grow and passion without having to worry about business is is really where I get excited. Absolutely. So let's, what do you say we get into it? Let's jump into it. Let's do it. All right. So, you know, like, like I said earlier, one of the biggest things that uh, I know a lot of people ask me about or, or the biggest complaint that I see on uh, certain photography forums is people talking about the difference in lens prices. Obviously, there are, you know, 50 mil lenses that people can buy for 100 bucks, And then there's another 50 mil lens they cost 1400 or more. And people really want to know why, understandably, why is it so much more expensive and is it any better? So, Calum, you want to start off with this one? Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of different qualities that make up um, why lenses cost so much money. Um, I traveled Europe with a 50 mil, the Nifty 50. It cost us like, what, 150 25 30 130 canadian it's like 100 bucks for you guys in the states that's all plastic you know that's really it's kind of the low end of the plastic glass barrel um but it's been so popular because it's so cheap and does a really good job but there's a whole bunch of things and we're going to talk about that um what those qualities are but just to give you a quick overview is the big considerations for price and quality is whether it's plastic versus glass um, compression, not compression, sorry, chromatic aberration. Um, and we'll talk about that and we'll try and show off maybe an image where there might be a little bit of that, but we might oh, not I have an image. A bunch of images. You got a bunch of images? I oh, think yeah. I have one or two. Um, we have image stabilization technology, which sits in a lot of the, the higher end cameras that are expensive. Um, and what else? Um, and then prime versus zooms. Zooms become more expensive a lot quicker because of just the physics that are involved in making multiple pieces of glass interact with each other inside a, a barrel. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess, you know, one thing that um, we forgot in that list is the aperture as well. Aperture. Yes. 
man, I feel uh, dumb for forgetting that one. Rookies today. Yeah. Woo. I've not had enough coffee today. Everyone but... gets a pass today. We forgot for that. <laughs> so the first thing is plastic versus glass. Like you said, the $100 Nifty 50 is made out of plastic. The entire thing is plastic. And I know what you think. You know, plastic is clear. Why can't it be used as a lens? And sure, it can. And it is, you know, with perfect example being the Nifty 50. Um, and honestly, I highly recommend that lens. It is great because the first lens that everybody gets with their camera is the 18 to 55 zoom lens, right? It's kind of versatile. It's a pretty normal zoom range, but also where it's lacking is it's a variable aperture. So when you're at the wide spectrum, it's an aperture of 3.5. And then when you're at the telephoto lens, or the telephoto side, it's an aperture of 5.6. So it changes depending on uh, where you are in the focal length. And it's just because it's um, of the limitations of the plastic. So when you add glass to a lens, it means that it's a constant um, um, aperture, which helps out a lot. So because of that, that makes it more expensive. Hey, future Raymond here. So I actually misspoke uh, here. A variable aperture, like in your standard kit lens, is not a result of having plastic elements in your camera lens, but it's simply common for lenses constructed out of plastic because uh, cost is the most important factor when uh, building these lenses. Uh, not so much overall image quality. So with a higher quality lens uh, that zooms in and out, it would have a consistent aperture rather than a variable aperture. So I hope I hope that helped. Let's get back into this one. But when you add glass, just the production value that goes into making the lens is completely different than plastic. With plastic, you can mold it and then it's done. You don't have to worry about, you know, polishing it or shaping it to the right size. It's right. molded right there. But when it comes to glass, you're essentially taking a brick of glass and then um, like sanding it down to the right size. So there's a lot of loss there. But that's why the image quality is better because there's more, um, um, what is it, more hands-on approach that goes into it. There's a lot more production value that goes into glass. Um, so because of that, that's where the price starts to go up. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is like we said, the aperture, the larger the aperture, the more light is allowed in. So to have more light come in, you also need more glass. More glass, the price goes up once again, right? Oh, oh absolutely. It's It gets very, very expensive. Um, like Raymond said, that Nifty 50, I bought one used probably for 120 bucks. Uh, I think the, the new Nikon 58 1.4 um, is about $1,800 or $1,900 or, or so, brand new. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is just, it's heavy, um, because of all the, just the optical glass in it that makes it so amazing. And they do things to the glass that, uh, help out with image quality, kind of like what Raymond was saying there. Um, so, I mean, even if I look at, you can see, I've got a lens here. I'll just, I'll very quickly show you guys. Um, so this is my, if you're just listening to us today, this is the 51.4. So this is, uh, Nikon's current one for 
50 mil. Um, hey, Future Raymond, back. You know, one thing about photography is that there are a lot of numbers involved. And, um, you know, when we're talking about lenses and apertures and focal lengths and, you know, ISO and lots of all of these settings, there are so many numbers. Um, and I think just after doing it for so many years, sometimes you can kind of shorthand these things. So I just wanted to make it clear that when we say something like 51.4, that means a 50 millimeter lens with a maximum aperture of f 1.4. So if I were to say something like uh, 85.12, that means that it is an 85 millimeter lens, a prime lens, with a maximum aperture of f 1.2. Now, if I were to say something like 70 to 200 to 8, you can guess it. It is a 70 to 200 millimeter zoom lens with a maximum aperture of f. 2.8. So I hope that helps kind of uh, better clarify things. Again, a lot of numbers are being thrown around, but hopefully with that little bit of extra information there, you can you can better keep up. And you can see it there. You can see it's kind of wide. You know, it looks like it's got a bit of glass there. Um, here's the back end for you. Um, so this is glass. This is like, it's heavy. It, it's pure glass. It opens up to one four. Oh, can you, everyone hear my dog? Home intruder. Home intruder. I probably got a delivery for something. Um, Hopefully it's that new Fuji camera that you're uh, getting, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. I, yeah, it's probably an album for a client, <laughs> I would imagine. Um, so this is all pure glass. And then the, the Nifty 50 is just a little bit smaller. And I have one somewhere around here, but it is I got missing one. at the moment. It's right Hey, Raymond here. If you're sometimes baffled by which camera settings to use, then I've got just the thing for you. My free guide, Picture Perfect Camera Settings. It's a fantastic starting point for anybody eager to understand the basics of camera settings in various shooting scenarios. And it's tailored to beginners who want to get out of auto mode, providing clear, easy to follow suggestions on where to start with your settings. So whether you're capturing a stunning landscape or a family portrait, Picture Perfect Camera Settings will help you to get off of automatic mode and explore the possibilities your camera offers. Remember, mastering photography settings is a journey, and this guide is your first step. And the perfect resource to guide you towards finding the right settings for your style. So grab your copy today at perfectcamerasettings.com and start your journey to better photos. Here. There you go, yeah. So, oh, here we go. So, yeah, it's, it's a little smaller. Uh, I ripped off the back end, so don't worry about that. But you can see that, like, it clearly fits in the palm of my hand. Uh, it's nice and small. It's very lightweight because it's plastic. Yeah. Also, why do you have a Nikon Nifty 50 and why have you turned into a freelance? <laughs> to freelance for that exact reason, to freelance. But now sure. that I've switched to Fuji, I have to place the lens so far apart from the camera that it just doesn't too much light leak. Nope, doesn't work. Interesting. Um, so yeah, this is all pure glass. But then when you look at this one, this is my, I should take the back off so light goes through and you can see what's going on in there. But this is the 85 and this is just the 1.8. This thing is absolutely massive. It's even heavier. Um, as you can see, it's all high quality glass. Um, and it gets even more ridiculous as you go up into bigger lenses like the 70 to 200. Um, and that's just glass quality. As the price goes up for image quality, so does the price for us to buy them, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. 
so, you know, those are two of the main things, glass versus plastic. Um, you know, when you're looking for a lens, one of the things that I highly recommend is that you spend more money on your lens than you do on your camera body because lenses are made out of glass, right? And when was the last time you heard of, like, glass technology? It's not very often, right? Uh, no, never. Right. Never. <laughs> Whereas with camera bodies, sensors are always upgrading, ISO performance is always getting better, but glass always stays the same. So if you can get a good piece of glass, that's gonna last you for maybe you know, three camera bodies. So three times as long as your camera will. So it makes sense to invest in that as opposed to um, the new camera, essentially. So I would highly recommend just buying the cheapest camera that you can buy if you're just getting into this and you, have, and you don't have a camera. Just buy the cheapest camera that you can buy but buy the best glass that you can afford. And for Canon users, there's a middle range. There's the nifty 50 that's 100 bucks. That's a 51.8. And then there's a 51.4 for about $300. And then there's the 51.2, which is $1,400. Um, if you can afford the $300 1.4, made out of glass, awesome lens, great build quality. It's on that camera right there that I use for video. Highly recommend it. Cool. Yeah, I it's it's pretty similar for Nikon as well. So I mean, the Nifty Fifty is about hundred bucks used, and or even cheaper probably in the United States. Um, and the fifty one point four is sitting on my D seven fifty right now, just for some experimental stuff I was doing. Um, but the the new flagship one is the one point four fifty eight. Um, everybody loves it that I've met. Um, they just say you got to sell your left and right foot to buy one. Um, and that one runs in the high 15, 1700 range. Um, yeah. Super expensive, super expensive, but super expensive quality though. Um, mm -hmm. but it is important to also use your money wisely. So we're not saying go out and buy that lens if you don't have the budget for it. Um, you can make, create great images with, the nifty 50 mm -hmm. i have tons um when i that was the only one that i owned the only lens i owned um and i you know it worked great i took pictures of people took pictures of everything with it um and there was no issues right yeah the big thing here like we've talked about on previous podcasts is that the gear doesn't as matter as much as your uh, technical knowledge so if you just start off with a 1.8 i mean or if you even have a 1.8 don't worry about upgrading right now um you know, let your experience dictate when it's time to upgrade. But you should get a prime for sure. So one of the next things that to talk about is, like we were just saying, image quality is important. The image quality gets better with glass. But there's one thing that a lot of people don't really know about, but it can be, it can be important because people want a prime lens or they want a faster lens, which means a wider aperture because of um, its better image quality. But there's something called chromatic aberrations. Hey, Future Raymond back again. I just wanted to say that before we get into this whole thing about ch chromatic aberration, it is kind of a difficult thing to explain in audio form, which is why uh, in the podcast, I'm about to show a photo of what chromatic aberration looks like. I didn't really think through the whole 
podcasting and showing images thing back in 2015. So if you want to see an example of what is chromatic aberration, what it looks like, then just go ahead and head over to beginnerphotopod.com forward slash 004. That's going to take you to the show notes of this page where I'm going to share those examples and I will highlight what chromatic aberration uh, is so that you can uh, identify it for yourself in your photo. So again, just head over to beginnerphotopod.com forward slash 004. Chromatic aberrations. And it's kind of an enemy of photographers because... Let me show you an example, but first let me tell you what it is. So first, chromatic aberrations are, um, because there's multiple pieces of glass in the lens, light is coming through them and then it's, the angle of the light is being switched in a different direction with each new piece of glass that it passes through. Well, when there's a high contrast photo, sometimes the angle might be off a tiny bit, a tiny bit. So maybe the color red or the color green will show up in high contrast areas. And I got a photo right here that I'm going to show you. So this typically happens in cheaper lenses. Um, so here we go. So this is my son, Charlie. Now this is a one-to-one -one crop, so it looks like garbage, but this is a photo of my son, Charlie, and he's playing on his little leap pad. And you can see right here, where the white meets the black, it looks red, right? Yeah, there's a red, purple fringe going on. Yeah, and that is what we call chromatic aberrations. Okay, so if you're looking at a photo like full on, maybe you won't notice it as much, but it's also not gonna seem very sharp. So here's another photo that I took, which illustrates it a little more. Like, look at her hands right here. You can just see the outline of her hands there with the fringing of the, the chromatic aberration. Yeah, yeah it looks like, and she, she's another uh, photographer here locally. Her name is uh, Holly Russell. She's a great photographer. Um, you could just see, it looks almost like a halo effect, right? So when you're looking to take photos, you want them as sharp as possible, and that's why you buy a lens with glass in it. But do your research because the 50, this was taken with a 51.4, which is made out of glass, but again, chromatic aberrations. Um, and again, another area of high contrast between white and black. This one, it's not as noticeable. And I'm not even sure if with the compression of uh, Google Hangouts, you'd be able to see it. But looking on my computer, it's a bit red right here. Uh, I can't really see it through Google Hangouts. What I can see, though, is if you go back... Uh, one image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you can see is the green fringing between the shadow and the background there. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even on the pant leg there, the green fringing on the right side. Absolutely. Yeah. So typically it's just pink or red, rather, because it's all primary colors, red and green. But, uh, yeah, you can see it right here as well, and it looks green. It looks green right here in the uh, the eyelets of the of the shoe as well. So... Sometimes it's not a big deal, and really, you know, what's important is uh, just getting getting the moment. Where'd I go? There I am. It's just getting the moment um, when it happened. But it's just something to be aware of when it comes time to uh, making an investment in this glass. Um, I would say that the Sigma series, the art series, way better than the Canon 1.4. Um, and if you can afford, it's 
it's about double the price. And if you could afford it, I would say go for it because there's oftentimes now when I go back and look at my photos, I, I don't know if it's just because I have the technical knowledge now, but when I look at them, that's the first thing I see is those, are those uh, chromatic aberrations. And I just think it just doesn't look as sharp as my photos that I take now look, even though I still have the 1.4. Hey, future Raymond back again. You know, we really didn't talk about this, but um, chromatic aberration really is something that you're not necessarily going to notice unless you know what it is that you're looking for um, or that you know what it is. So it's really one of those things that, you know, I think a professional can point out immediately. But for a beginner, I would leave you with this and just say, don't worry really about chromatic aberration like don't go searching for all the blogs to find the lens with quote-unquote the 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 least or the best chromatic aberration because uh, you're going to find a million different um, opinions uh, and photos and that is going to cause decision fatigue and that's going to keep you from actually shooting so my best piece of advice for you is that honestly i think any lens that is created today is probably better than 97% of all lenses created, say, in the in the 60s or the 70s. So anything that you get today is still going to be phenomenal. So just go ahead and pick out the lens that, you know, the best lens that you can afford, and you're going to be happy. I promise you. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And it, I was going to bring up this point is I used to have the Nikon 35 F2, and that was like 80s technology. Um, when they released that lens, I used that for a long time as my 35 full frame lens. Uh, it worked really great. Um, and then Sigma came out with that 35 Um, and it was like night and day to me with chromatic aberrations. It's sharp. Um, unless I'm trying to shoot a headshot with the sun right behind their head. Um, like just, you know, the, the worst contrast you can think of, I might get a little bit, but it is spot on with getting rid of that. Um, it's super impressive, but, you know, four years ago, um, four and a bit years ago, I was using 35F2 um, Nikon, and it was amazing. I loved it. Um, I, have, I, I know I still have photographs on my website with that lens, and nobody can tell that it was taken with a $300 lens. Um, so really it's, you know, we, it's the same adage. We're going to, we're going to do this for years, but it's going to be more what you want to shoot and what you, what you experience, um, than the gear. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's very smart. But segueing from all that, we should talk about image stabilization, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, image stabilization is, um, it gets expensive because, and I have a lens, I actually boxed it up. I'm not going to take it out because you can't actually see what image stabilization is. But image stabilization in lenses is, imagine that this lens was image stabilized, okay? There's a piece of glass right here. There's a piece of glass in the back. And imagine in between, say right here, there's a pocket of fluid, and in that pocket of fluid is another smaller lens that all the light gets directed through. So image stabilization helps because when you move back and forth, that lens can float around slightly in that um, uh, pocket of liquid. So because of that, the image doesn't move around as much. It can, um, it essentially just softens things out. 
And the reason why this is good, which a lot of people think it's great for sports, and it is great for sports because a lot of times you're moving very fast and, um, you know, you do get a lot of shake. But where I find it to be the best is low light. So um, a lot of times at night, what do you do to get more light into the sensor? You you bring down the shutter speed. You bring it down to... Um, There are two ways to bring home more money with your photography business. You either get more clients or you spend less of the money that you make. CloudSpot Studio helps you keep more of what you earn. With the lowest payment processing fees in the industry, the average photographer will save $300 annually. And that's just more money to invest in essential gear like a new flash or a sweet camera bag. You know, one that is perfect for storing all of the wedding day snacks that you can pack. But it's not just about savings. CloudSpot Studio is designed to streamline your workflow. Easily organize shoots, send contracts, questionnaires, invoices, and you're really going to enjoy the hassle-free payments. So sign up for a free CloudSpot account at deliverphotos.com and... As a bonus, you're going to get access to my exclusive wedding and portrait contracts and questionnaires at no additional cost. Why let fees chip away at your profits? Empower your photo journey with CloudSpot and watch your business soar. Well, 60th of a second on a 85 mil lens. There you go. You don't, you don't want to go below whatever the focal length is. So on an 85 lens, you don't want to go below... One one hundredth of a second, right? Absolutely. Right below that is going to be one fiftieth or one sixtieth of a second if you're going in thirds of stops. So whenever you go below whatever the focal length is for the shutter speed. You're at risk of creating a a blurry image because your hands shake. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So you find image stabilization a lot in longer lenses for that reason because for the 70 to 200, like I said, you don't want to – go below the shutter speed of the focal length. So you don't want to go below a 200th of a second or 250th of a second, just to make sure that things are still sharp, which means that you really can't use it at night because that's a pretty fast shutter speed. So where image stabilization comes in is that because of that little amount of shake that you have, it can help out by, I think it's three stops, right? So So that means that you can shoot from, instead of one 200th, one one hundredth, one fiftieth of a second. That's two stops more light right there. Um, and automatically. It, yeah, it helps just with, and I think it's important to also recognize, you know, you have this big lens, maybe that's 7200, and a little movement just like you guys might not be able to, just a little movement like this. It's going to be amplified. It amplifies at distance. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Charlie, what's up? No, not right now. I'm talking... We're talking online. Can you see it? Yeah. Okay. You want to go watch Bubble Guppies and then we can go play in the tent in a little bit? Okay. Okay. I'll see you in a minute. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if I just turn around, uh, he's going to go watch on. Bubble Guppies. We'll get on with it. Okay. Um, he might stand there and just be the, the only viewer today of the podcast. Uh, oh. Not anymore. He's gone. <laughs> We're not that interesting to him, apparently. Not to him. We're not bubble guppies. <laughs> yeah, so that tiny little shake is going to amplify when you're, you're focused out at 200 mils. And what's going to happen is if you're shaking too much, you know, there's absolutely nothing that will save it, even with image stabilization. Um, and 
I use image stabilization on my 7200, especially at night when it gets dark and you're pushing your ISO um, higher. Um, I'll bring my shutter speed down to one sixtieth of a second to, and really breathe um, really slowly and try and get that perfect shot. But the image stabilization is great. It's but, a lifesaver. It's a lifesaver, but it also comes with a price because it's technology that helps professionals and you know non-professionals get the shot. Um, it takes a lot of – I don't even know how the technology works inside the barrel. Um, even I, I've read about it tons, but I even don't even get it now. I just know that there's an element, and it moves a little bit inside to compensate for your shiftiness. Mm -hmm. um, if you have shaky hands or you move too fast, you see something – um, but it is a godsend, but it does affect price overall. And weight. That's another thing. Oh yes. Weight. Weight is huge. Um, between my, between the, what is it? Is it, uh, the old 7,200 for Nikon without image stabilization? Um, it's called VR for Nikon, um, vibration reduction. Um, and the ones that do have them, the weight is, yeah, it's massive. Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 literally a whole nother piece of glass inside of a pocket of fluid. So you got to think of the weight of, you know, the fluid as well as the glass to be able to move around freely. So um, it does add weight and obviously space. So because of that, you got to have bigger glass. Absolutely. Um, that's another thing to think of. If you can ever get a lens with uh, either VR uh, for Nikon or, or IS for Canon, do it. I highly recommend it. If you're shooting a lot, either for sports or at night, um, I highly recommend it. If, however, you shoot like astronomy um, or as yeah, astronomy photos, right? Yeah, astrophotography. Astrophotography. There you go. Kellen with the assist. Uh, if you're shooting that and it's on a tripod, image stabilization is uh, – it doesn't help. Surprisingly, it actually makes the images um, softer. Because for some reason, while it's sitting on the tripod, sometimes it's trying to help. But just that little bit of shake will actually kind of screw up your image on the sensor. So Yeah, they do warn you that once you get over a certain shutter speed, um, I believe it's over one five hundredth of a second or something, I believe. Um, they advise that you turn it off. On tripods as well, you're not supposed to use it. Um, only because, like Raymond said, it just it just moves it a little bit, and it'll actually just make them softer instead of sharper. So yeah, we want um, sharpness. Yeah, sharpness is key, mm -hmm. key all the time. Um, all the time. So what what what's after our image stabilization? Right. Well, now it's it's again with the price. We're talking about the price of primes versus zoom lenses. So right. typically, you'll find. You know, a lot of people also ask this, is that how come a 50 mil 1.2 lens costs as much as a 24 to 70 2.8 lens when you can get to 50 mil? You have so much more versatility in a zoom lens. Why is it so expensive? And one of the things is, is that when you have a zoom lens, let's see if you can see this. Um, this is the back element for a, a 17 to 40. When you zoom, it's physically moving glass. There needs to be space in between there to move. So it makes lenses larger instead of just um, a single focal length, right? Yep. So because it moves, you're adding space. And because you're adding space away from the sensor, 
the uh, the element in the front needs to be larger as well. So you can see just the difference in here. That adds more glass. More glass equals more money. Um, also with the zoom, it needs to be precise. Because optics are moving, you don't want it to lose any sharpness when you're zooming in and out. So there is a lot more R&D that goes into producing a zoom lens. There's a lot more glass that goes into producing a zoom lens, as well as a consistent aperture zoom lens. So if you look at this, you rotate it right up. So four, yeah. Yeah, this is a 17 to 40 F4. So I know that it doesn't say F, it says one semicolon four. So one means full. So it's full open aperture is an F4. Um, I'm cool with that because it's so wide that um, I don't think that the one extra stop for a 2.8 is worth it to me. Um, it saves a lot of weight, and I'm all about just getting the shot. And if that means that uh, I can save weight and money, I'm going to do it perfectly sharp. It's a great lens. Absolutely, um, yeah. Um, and then for primes, the reason why they also become so expensive is literally sometimes just the physical size of the glass um, and quality. Um, sometimes with zooms uh, in Nikon's, especially at the lower ones with the you know the eighteen to fifty fives and uh, the fifty five three hundreds that are kind of the what they I guess what people will consider kit lenses that mm -hmm. you get when you buy. Um, they have a combination of glass and plastic elements um, that work together. Um, you know, and also weather sealing comes into effect um, and drives the price up of these kind of really high-end zooms. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a whole bunch of kind of questions you have to ask about your prime versus zoom candidates. Um, and they, like Raymond has that, was it 17 to 40 Canon? Yeah. Um, that works for him um, because it gives him versatility for the wide angle. And then also if he's in a, in a jam and can't get his other camera into his hand, he can zoom into 40 mil. Yeah. Um, and he's good to go. Um, I'm yeah. on the other end. I like, I all have a, either the 24 or the 35 on one camera during a wedding day. And I'll usually shoot with an 85 on the other end. So if I need to get wider, I just kind of put one camera down and pick up the other one and, and keep going. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that I guess starting off with this one might have been a bad example. I This is the only zoom lens that I own. And it's only because I keep this thing at uh, 17 mil 99% of the time. And of that 99% of the time, it's only during the reception. I don't use this basically for anything else. I might use it for a shot of a church just, just to get an ultra wide or, um, you know, one shot of the room just to you know, again, just to document what it was. But aside from that, like Callum said, I always have either a 35 or an 85 equivalent now that I'm on Fuji uh, on my cameras. So, um, yeah, that's another question. I'm sure that you get asked all the time is why would you shoot primes if you can just shoot a zoom? If you can, you know, why would you have a 35 mil lens and an 85 mil lens when you can pretty much just get a 24 to 70 and be set? And have both. Uh, yeah, so I mean, one part is quality. Um, I think now, as I you know moved into the professional realm, I look for higher quality in all my lenses um, than I think probably what I expected. Um, and the and I think it's pretty well documented. Um, we don't 
really go over it a ton because you can go onto many websites um, and see the quality difference between zoom lenses at different focal lengths and primes. Primes just operate um, better. Um, and that comes down to a lot of the technology behind prime lenses. There's less glass to sort of murk things and, and, you know, make things softer. You're getting a much sharper image through uh, one. Oh, Charlie's back. Prime optical lens. Everyone wave to Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Um, Are you watching these? I love that he makes cameo appearances. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, and I think, I think also it forces me to also interact more with what I'm involved in, um, as opposed to standing really far back and zooming in and out and being lazy about it. Yeah, um, that was my biggest thing, is that I found that I became – I hate to say it, an extremely lazy photographer. When um, when I first got my 5D Mark II, I had the 24 to 70, um, as well as the 17 to 40 and a uh, 70 to 200. I would just camp out, man, and I would just zoom in or get wider whenever I needed to. But it wasn't until um, I told myself, you know what, I'm going to shoot with the 50 a little more, that I found that just the walking back and forth and um, the additional depth of field um, you know, gave me a, a boost as well that I found that it was a much better fit for me. So it made me less lazy. And on top of that, the added benefit of the better image quality and the depth of field made it a no brainer for me. Absolutely. I totally agree with everything there. But um, however, if you are an event shooter, if you shoot like parties, um, like birthday parties, or if you shoot, um, you know, corporate events or, or, you know, something like that. I know a lot of uh, corporate shooters um, in, in Texas and they rely on their, on their zoom lenses. And that makes sense for them because sometimes they're in a really tight spot and they're in um, or they need to get something far away and they're not being hired for an artistic view like they are for a wedding, but they're being hired to capture the moment. So I think that if that's what you're focusing on, or if you're only taking photos of your family, maybe a zoom lens is the right choice for you. But if you really want to take a step out of your comfort zone and get something a little more artistic, I would say get yourself a prime and give it a shot. Absolutely. And I think that segues us right into compression. Yes. Uh, which is a big, big uh, thing with zoom. Um, so focal lengths. And with apertures, um, and as aperture, and I guess something we didn't mention originally was that the apertures typically are wider on prime lenses. Yeah, but, yeah. it's just it's just a, a money thing to develop a <laughs> Charlie <laughs> um, to develop a a zoom aperture at one point four would be almost probably almost too expensive almost too expensive but well they make that uh, sigma 18 to 35 zoom lens which is a 1.8 right but to get down to like 1.4 would be another yeah. level of glass um different optics well the other thing to remember that's super important is that it's only made for crop sensors it doesn't work on full frame exactly. for that reason and that's another sort of, you know, realm where you have to worry about full frame versus crop sensors and whatnot. And we won't even go into that today, but I think it's, it's yeah, well, maybe another video. Um, but we should show off some examples, Raymond, of compression 
um, cool. with different focal lengths. So people can get a quick idea of what focal lengths will do for your image um, and where quality glass from primes comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Should I go, should I go first? Uh, yeah, if you want to. Um, you have an example of yourself, right? Uh, not of my own, not me. It's not a picture of me, but I have my own. <laughs> but I mean, a photo that you took, right? Yes. Okay, so, cool. Again, to see the examples, head over to beginnerphotopod.com forward slash zero zero four. Cool. So here's the first one. This is actually 2012 backpacking trip. Um, this is the one that Callum doesn't like, but I think is pretty darn cool. Yeah, I think knowing what I know now, I could have done some different things, you know, angled it a little differently um post-processed it a little differently but that's really not the point here the point is that this is a wide angle and this is the 10 to 20 nikon uh crop sensor uh lens if i so recall it was about a 15 to 35 about 15 to 35 yeah um and so this is the louvre in paris i think everyone knows where this is um and you what i wanted to point out with this was compression there is really no compression in this shot we can see in the if you're kind of just listening in the bottom, you can see this marble sitting area um, that surrounds the Louvre. And then you can definitely tell that it's some distance back to the actual Louvre. Um, and then even farther behind that is a building. Um, I forget the name of it now. Um, my apologies. Someone from, Paris, the Louvre. someone from Paris would be like, no, that's this building. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, and then you can see even farther in the distance, you know, people and more monuments. Um, so really the compression here is non-existent. Um, this gives you almost a sort of exaggerated view of the depth of field that you have um, in this shot. But what I wanted to do was then obviously flip and show you guys a 50 millimeter shot. So I've got, this is 10 millimeters. This is 50 Um so you can see there's a little bit of a compression change here. Yeah. Things look like they have snuck right up behind uh, the portrait of the person. Um, and what you see is you have a person, they're probably about seven feet to maybe eight feet away from where I was as they were walking towards me. And I, I'm, I'm probably pretty wide open here. I'm probably 1.6, 1.4, maybe 1.8. Um, I don't recall the exact second. And... Everything in the background looks like it's been just smashed together, kind of in one flat plane. You can't really get a good, solid sense of how far back that tree is in the top corner. Um, you can tell it's kind of far away, but it looks like it could be close, too. Um, and to move on from that really quickly so that Raymond can show you his images, um, I'll show you another one. This one's on an 85, so we're getting even farther up the, the, the focal length. and. So this is a two picture, or it's one picture of Matt and, and Brooke um, in Maryland. And Brooke is probably about five feet away from me on my 85 millimeter lens. And Matt's on the left side is about 20 to 25 feet back. But he looks like he's right next to um, Brooke. It looks like he is only maybe a few feet away from her. Yeah, um, yeah. It doesn't look like there is, is such a separation of space. Right. Um, he had to walk quite a far back. He's actually on a rock in a river um, at this point, but he's actually quite far back. Um, and this was achieved because the compression on the 85 millimeter lens makes everything in the background sort of enlarge and pull towards 
the top of the image or the front of the image. Um, so you can see that very clearly um, as compared to, say, you know, the 10 mil photo, the 10, 10 millimeter photo. Yeah, it looks right here like it would take you uh, at that picture of the Louvre. It, I mean, it looks like the Louvre is probably, uh, I don't know, three or four hundred feet, you know, away from the camera. Right. Whereas this one, Matt's, you know, the Louvre probably is probably in an actual sense, maybe about a hundred feet back. Okay. Um, it's exaggerated, obviously, because the wider angle forces you to think it's farther, but it's probably only a hundred feet. Um, but with this one, Matt's 20 feet back and he looks like he's right in front of my camera. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. then to show you a dog for the last photo, this is at 200 millimeters. And this dog is probably, he was probably 50 feet back from me. I couldn't get too close to him with this image. Um, but the background, um, the, the green scenery you see all around the dog is actually probably another 60, 70 feet back. It was really far away. He was right in the middle of a big open pathway, um, not really much behind him. Um, and what you can see here is that everything's gone very blurry. It's very out of focus. Um, and there's really nothing that you can't really tell what it is, but you can see that it feels almost as if it's right behind the dog. It feels like it's right there next to him. And that's compression. That is just compressing an image right into the middle of one image. Yeah, it looks like he has like got his back up against the uh, that fence right there, or the wall of, of greens, rather. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that's kind of four different examples of how depth of field will work and compression will play a part as you scroll through these. You can see just different levels of compression, and that's just your just your focal length that has created that compression. I like it. Those are good examples, man. Thanks. Thank awesome, you. awesome. Um, so um, I got I got two examples right here as well. So this was at a wedding that I went to. Uh, wrong one. Here we go. This is a, a couple, one of the nicest couples I've ever met in my entire life, uh, Nick and Christina. They got married in an old Orthodox church, right? So you can see here that I uh, barely got like the chandelier in the photo. It's a little bit tilted because I think I went from portrait to landscape or yeah, from portrait. No, from landscape to portrait real quick. Um, so it's a little bit off center, but I got the chandelier up here. Um, and then it's right up against the, uh, the steps at the bottom. But it's really focused on them. And if you look at the background... It looks like they're pretty close, right? It looks like they're, uh, I don't know, 10 or 5 or 10 feet away from the background. But yeah. I took the same photo with my 17 to 40 right here, and oh, wow. suddenly this church is huge. Yeah, it looks huge. This is from the exact same point. So with the 135 mil lens, I got, I don't know if you can see my mouse right there, but I got from here down, you know, barely to the steps right there. So... You're really zooming in. I mean, I'm getting, I guess it's uh, 135, 75, 30. So I'm getting six, nine times the amount of area in the same from the same position. Right. Um, now you can see, if, if you just look at the photo, my camera, I must have looked like an idiot because my camera was pointed straight here at the middle of the photo. Um, right here, I would say right here, this uh, little ball 
a Some part of this that. chandelier, but because it's so wide, I was able to get, you know, um, this, this picture of Jesus is literally straight above me, straight above me. And uh, Nick and Christina are straight ahead of me. So that is a 90 degree, is it 90 degree? No, it'd be 45 degree field of view right, right. there in the one photo. Um, and suddenly it looks like that background of that church is much further back. It or, looks like it's another 100 feet past the bride and groom to get to the back of it. Yeah, or vice versa. It looks like I'm insanely further back from the couple than they are from the wall, which, whereas in this photo, it doesn't look like I'm, you know, it doesn't feel like I'm, uh, you know, at the back of a church taking this photo. Yeah, you know what I was going to point out? This, the compression also tra- changes sort of the connection you get with an image. Yeah. Um, you know, if you go back to your ultra wide there, you know, I get a really good sense of the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get a good sense of the bride and groom. Right. Um, but when you go back to your zoomed up one, you know, I feel really involved. I feel really, you know, attached, almost connected with the bride and groom the first because I can really get a good feel for it. I feel like I'm right in the moment. Um, so compression and field of view also affects just how people will think about your image. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. So there's yeah. really a lot of questions that you have to ask yourself when it comes to buying a new lens, figuring out what new lens it is that you want, why it's so expensive, and uh, what you're going to be using it for. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just as Raymond said there, you know, don't feel like you always have to go out and, and get the most expensive lens right away. Um, you know, some photographers are out there doing crazy things on like 500pixel.com, px.com, and uh, Flickr with kit lenses on, you know, entry-level bodies in crop frame. And some are doing amazing things on top-of-the-line gear. Um, it's kind of all about what you need, what you can afford, and, and what your artistic eye is really trying to create. Um, I shot with the 50 mil Nifty 50 for a long time. Um, I shot with really old eighties lens. I still shoot with a eighties or nineties Tamron like macro lens. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's awesome. That's, that's really awesome that you're able to do that. It's cracked on the side of the plastic because it's <laughs> plastic. Um, but it all works functionally. It, you know, I still give albums out and deliver from photos with that lens. Um, yeah. I think it cost me all of $180. Um, as opposed to the same lens from Nikon, the new one being seven, eight hundred dollars. Yeah, and I mean, even even into right now, like we're both professionals, we both do this full time. This is how we make our money, and yet you still shoot with the eighty-five one eight, right? Yeah, they make an eighty-five one four, which is considered their top of the line pro glass. Yeah, I do. I still shoot with this fifty one four right here, and I don't, I don't own the fifty one point two because. I don't need it. It doesn't fit my style of photography better. My style is get the moment, like right now, get that moment. And with a 51.2, that lens is going to be not only larger, a lot heavier. Totally. So if I'm having, I don't want to say having a hard time holding the lens because it's not that heavy. It's not like it's 50 pounds or anything, but after you're holding it all day, you can get kind of tired. So when you're looking through it and other people see the lens, it's a big lens. It's a big lens. And suddenly they feel like they're on the spot. Like, whoa, oh, we have to pose for a photo here. Jeez. Uh, and it just looks fake. Um, that's not my style of photography. I don't care 
about the best image possible if you can still snag the moment. So I would much rather save money on a lens that is going to do the job than, than just worry about, oh, but look at the technical details, look at the MTF charts, and, and, but what about the you know, six pixels of chromatic aberrations right here? That, that doesn't matter as much to me. What matters is this guy and his needs right now. What's up, dude? Okay, yeah, we'll play with the Christmas train. It's almost Christmas uh, in five minutes, okay? Five-minute countdown for everybody right now. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, there are there's tons of the 70, 750s out that I just talked about with my new camera. There's the D800s, um, which are like the newer, the A10, I guess, is the new kind of huge monster camera that Nikon makes. But... I know photographers doing 40 weddings a year who run on the old model D700, the, you know, or I think it's the Mark II for Canon. Yeah. Uh, it's the similar, right? And they're still great cameras. Um, I think you should upgrade any piece of equipment when something that it does is going to help you make your life easier or, or help you actually do something better. But you got to know what that is. Um, a lens isn't going In a minute, to, okay. A lens isn't going to, uh, you know, it isn't going to make people happier. It isn't going to get them to smile and have an authentic moment. It's all about kind of what your vision is. So, um, yeah, I went out and buy a new camera, but it also is going to help me shoot a bit more in the dark, or it might help me autofocus better, which I'm very critical about. So that's where we are with that. All right, future Raymond here. Let's just do a quick wrap-up of today's episode, all about lenses, because I know that we talked about a ton, okay? So there are two types of lenses. There are zoom lenses and prime lenses. A prime lens, obviously, does not zoom. If you want to get closer to something, you have to move in closer with your feet. A zoom lens is more versatile, but it really comes with a trade-off of having a smaller maximum aperture, limiting the amount of light that can come in the lens. And also, with the moving elements inside of the lens, that can cause a bit of softness to your images. There are several reasons, um, you know, why you would want each. And I would just say that, uh, you know, you really got to try it out for yourself. However, with the uh, price of lenses, it might be easier for you to rent a lens that you're looking at rather than buy it. So I use CameraLensRentals.com. They're actually based local to me and hands down the best customer service and uh, prices for the lenses that you are Renting, So check them out if you're kind of debating between two lenses. That is uh, uh, CameraLensRentals.com. Rent it out, test it for yourself, and see which one you like better. Now, uh, moving on, there are several versions of each lens, right? There's kind of a beginner lens, a beginner version, an intermediate version, and a professional version. The beginner 50mm lens is a, you know, it's 150 bucks. And honestly, even though it has plastic elements, I think that it is a no-brainer second lens after the kit lens that, you know, comes with your camera. And it's because it is so cheap, and it is just the best way to make a huge impact on your images with its large f1.8 aperture, because that's going to allow in, um, you know, a lot more light and give you that beautiful out-of-focus background when you are shooting portraits. 
And then there's kind of the intermediate lens, right? Also 50 millimeters, but it has a maximum aperture of f1.4. It also has glass elements inside, so it's a bit sharper. Construction is off, also um, a bit beefier as well. And lastly is kind of that pro model, which is also a 50 millimeter lens, but it has a maximum aperture of f1.2, which makes it a $1,500 lens. Now, I'm going to tell you, it is easy to lust over, uh, you know, this professional gear, but do not worry about this lens. It is, it is for professionals who depend on their cameras to earn a living, right? The, the photographers who need their images to be 100% color accurate, extremely sharp, and are shooting in uncontrollable weather. For I'd be willing to say 99.99999% of you out there listening to this right now, that is not you. So don't worry about spending $1,500 on a lens uh, when you can get a $150 version, which is going to get you 99% of the way there for what it is that you are shooting. Now, the reason why you would buy a 50mm 1.8 lens when your kit lens also goes to 50mm is is because prime lenses are not only sharper, but uh, you know, but compared to the kit lens, the 50 millimeter prime lets in almost 800% more light at 50 millimeters than your kit lens. This is going to allow you to shoot in lower light situations like shooting indoors, and it is still going to get you that out of focus background that looks so good. So to get a full wrap up and to see the images that we referenced in this episode, just head over to beginnerphotopod.com forward slash zero zero four. And hey, while you're there, check out the link to join our ever-growing beginner photography podcast community on Facebook. It is the safest place on the internet for new photographers just like yourself to ask questions, uh, get feedback on your images so that you can grow into the photographer that you want to be and start taking better photos today. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the podcast. Remember, the more that you shoot today, the better of a photographer you will be tomorrow.